If you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Well, we're a hundred days away from the presidential election in the United States. hundred days. Last year, last August in fact, I was, Pam and I were in New York City. And of course we went and saw the Statue of Liberty and Times Square and Macy's. <laughs> but let me say the reason we went to Macy's, it was our first stop, it's because the the uh, uh, airline lost our luggage and we didn't have any clothes. And we waited the day and we still didn't have any clothes. And Pam started thinking I stunk, so I decided to go to Macy's. And, uh, but there was one place in particular that I wanted to go, actually two places, more than anywhere else. And today I want to share that experience with you because it has great significance as to the history of our nation and as to the presidential election every single four years. It's something that I had briefly learned in history, but had never comprehended. It's something that when it became, when I stood there and saw this truthfulness, it made me realize how far we've really drifted from God. And it made me realize how we've decided to begin to build our house on Sand instead of a rock. And you know, that talks about there in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, verse 24, says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, the first part of that, Jesus says, This man who's wise... He had a choice on where he was going to build his home. And he had, in his decision making, he looked and he said, do I want to be on sand or do I want to be on clay or do I want to be on a rock or where where do I want to build my home? What will I put and base my life upon? And he says, I will build it upon a rock. Verse 25, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. On a firm foundation, as we just sang. That no matter how heavy the waves may crash in or how much rain pours down or how the wind blows against the home, when a home is built on the rock, it will stand. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. What's scary, isn't it? Look at that again with me. Everyone who hears these sayings and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. He made the choice to build it on sand. He knew the way of a firm foundation, but chose to go towards a sifting sand, a place. And, you know, you can build a beautiful home on sand, can't you? 
Go down the Gulf Shores and Orange Beach. You can build an absolute high rise. But if, unless it has a firm foundation, when the winds come, it will be, get washed away. And it might look wonderful and beautiful and great and can show it off to the, all the world of, look at the home I've built upon this sand. It's great for most of the year. It's great until the winds come. The waves rise. And then it's on that day that it's too late. You can't do anything about it. And the scripture says, Jesus says, that the man who builds upon the sand is foolish, but the man who builds upon the rock is wise. So I ask you today, our nation, was it built upon a rock or sand? And then I ask you, today, are we building upon a rock or upon sand? So to go deeper, would Jesus call us wise or would he call us foolish? Well, when we were in New York, we went to this building right here, but it's no longer there. They have a museum in its place. But what you're looking at, and I know it's hard to see, but we did the best we could do with what we've got. But I hope that you can see this and follow this, okay? What you're looking at, well, let me ask you a question. How many of you think that the first capital of the United States of America was in Washington, D.C.? Raise your hand. Philadelphia. I mean, y'all are the smartest people I've ever spoken to on this. Mobile. <laughs> New York. Come on, there's no lion. There's no way. The first capital of the United States was in New York City. In fact, this building is where the Bill of Rights was written, and then they petitioned the, 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 the colonies, and now that we were become a nation, the delegates of the colonies, they had become states, and they said, can we have the capital? And they said, yes. And so they made the first capital in, in New York City, and there it sits. It sits on Wall Street, by the way. Wall Street was called Wall Street because there was literally a wall, a security wall that ran down the side of Wall Street, which made it Wall Street. Isn't that interesting? Now, this is a shortened version of this whole topic that I've gotten to speak in secular settings and in church settings. But what you see here, see those columns in the front? That's the that's where George Washington took his inaugural oath. In fact, Washington was living in Virginia, and they said, we want you to be our president, so they elect him, and he leaves his mommy, he goes and he tells her goodbye, knowing it would probably be the last time he'd see her, because she was up in age and not, and not feeling well. And he comes up, and he comes over into New York City, and there's great fanfare as he arrives into New York, and the papers say, we're going to have a prayer gathering for the President of the United States of America in this new direction that we're going as a nation. And so they go over, and they go to this, that front porch that you just saw in the building, and that's the picture of George Washington's inauguration. Now, it might be interesting that his hand is on the Bible. And when you go to the Bible, now I don't know if there's anything significant of this or not. They took the Bible and they placed it on a crimson colored pillow. I don't know if that's because there's something significant for Alabama fans. Knowing Alabama fans, I'm sure they'll make it into that. Or maybe for an Auburn fan, it had to be close. You know, God had to, to just 
anointed from the very beginning. I don't know, but they take the Bible, and here's what happened. Is Washington comes into the building, and they have this, all this preparation for his inauguration. The first president of a whole new style of government, one where the people are free and there's liberty for them. And they say, we want to build our house upon what? A rock. And so they go and they take the very word of God. They ran down the street and they took from the uh, Masonic Temple a huge, massive Bible. In fact, it's still around. And several presidents since have put their hand on the Bible and sworn an oath of presidency. And so they take it and they put it on this pillow and they open it up. And Washington's hand goes on the Bible. And he begins to state the very first time the oath of the United States president. And as he said that oath, when he finished the oath... This is documented in our history. George Washington, the first president of the country, upon finishing, he reached down and he kissed the Bible and he looked up to God and he said, So help me God. Now on this day, April 30th, 1789, would you say they built the house upon a rock or upon sifting sand? In fact, every president since, as a part of their oath, they end with, so help me God. But half of them, or if not many of those, especially in recent times, have no understanding. It's not just the words for George Washington It meant something. You see, for Washington, at that given time, when someone swore an oath, and this is, this is documented history, y'all, when someone swore an oath, it was not simply to appease the people, then an oath during 1789 was an allegiance to God. You were making it to an almighty God, the creator God. You were making it to Christ Jesus himself. You weren't making it to the people, and it was not a political move to try to get votes. It was a movement of saying, God, I need you. House built on a rock. And when Washington was done... They go inside, and and he gives his first inaugural address inside the Federal Hall, that building in New York you just saw. And so he gives his address. He talks about the Creator God. He talks about God. And then he comes over, and he comes back out of this building in that street, Wall Street. They come outside, and get this. Congress was in charge of the day's festivities. You have a first president and vice president, and you have the members of Congress, and Congress is in charge, and it's in the historical record found in the United States up in D.C. where this is written out that upon completion of the inaugural address, the president and vice president and all members of Congress will go to St. Paul's Chapel for divine service. You see... Upon the inauguration of Washington placing his hand on the Bible and talking to the members of Congress, the very first act of Congress and President was not let's go out and have a parade, let's not go out and talk to the media, let's not go out and have the best entertainers in America come and sing for us, Let's not go out and have the best chefs in America come and feed us. Instead, they decided that the very first act of president and vice president and Congress together would be to go to St. Paul's Chapel for divine service. Did you call that the rock or sifting sand? So they come out of this building and they took a right and then it comes and you, you go back one slide. You'll see a church in the background. That church in the background was being renovated, and so it wasn't available. Though that church is still there today, in fact. 
And but if they go to the church and they take a right, that's Broadway, the street Broadway. The theater Broadway was named after the street Broadway. The street Broadway wasn't named after the theater Broadway. So they go down to Broadway, and by the way, Broadway is where when the British got defeated and ran out of New York City, they ran the British down Broadway, and they literally ran them onto the ships, and they took off as fast as they could. They didn't embrace their enemies, they ran them off the shores. And so he, they come to Broadway, and they take a right, and they go maybe a mile or so, if that, and they go to this church called St. Paul's Chapel. And they go inside for divine service, the first act of president and Congress together. And they go in, and in fact, what you're looking at is a drawing of George Washington's pew. While he was president those first couple of years serving in New York, this is where he and his family went to church. And he would go in and think about the prayers that he would pray in that pew for, the, for his new presidency, for the nation, for the people of the nation, for his family, for people, for his own needs, just like you guys did at the altar a moment ago. But on this particular day, April 30, 1789, George Washington and the Vice President and all members of Congress come together to pray. And this is what their prayer, this is what their divine service looked like. They come in and they begin to read from what? They read numerous scriptures from the Holy Bible. Then get this, they pull out Christian hymnals, and they began to sing praises to God. How mighty God is, how needy we are for God, etc. And they sing Christian hymns, have a Christian hymn book, they have Christian verses from a Christian, from the, from the Bible, and then they turn around and they begin to have prayer, and guess what they prayed? In Jesus' name. It wasn't a candy-coated one-size-fit-all for everybody in the country to be satisfied type of prayer. It's like a school system leader who came to me and said, I don't understand when you preachers, you all get a chance to pray out in public, how come you have to pray in Jesus' name? I mean, I was at an event the other day and the guy was praying and it was a beautiful prayer and he comes to the end and he ruined the whole thing by saying in Jesus' name, which offended half the people there. First, I was ready to choke him. But that's not the right response, is it? And then I stopped for a moment and I said, you know, I said, for me, when I get asked to speak, to pray at public events, I pray in Jesus' name. I said, you know why? Because Jesus said to pray in Jesus' name. And so if I'm going to pray and I don't pray in Jesus' name, then what's the point of me praying? This is a big shot in the school system, by the way. And he turns around and he says, well, I can understand that, but I mean, you know, it's, is it really that essential? I said, it's essential to me. I said, it's kind of like this. If somebody doesn't like for me to pray in Jesus' name, then don't ask me to pray. You want my name on the docket. You like to have all the this, this stuff and make this grand introduction. You want me to be at your event, but then you want me to stop how I want to pray? Then don't ask me to be at your event. You see, for some reason, we as Christians have retreated, especially even from the public school sector. Why? 
Well, he backpedaled on that. He goes, well, I can understand that. Like, so if you want me to come show up, I'm going to pray in Jesus' name. Last uh, Thursday morning, Dr. Hollinger and I were at University of South Alabama with public school teachers, and I shared my, part of my testimony with them in Jesus' name. We're getting rave reviews every time we go speak because people are hungry for someone who's bold enough to speak truth and not candy coat. And just like when I spoke to the superintendents of Alabama back in February, big fancy Montgomery Hotel. The night before, I'm thinking, now why am I here? What am I going to do? And the president of the whole thing, we were at dinner the night before. I said, now what do you want me to do? He goes, give us Jesus. I said, how far do you want me to go? <laughs> he leaned across the table and goes, we all know we need God in our public schools. Bring us Jesus. Amen. You see, we, can, we, we continue to lose sight that God is planting people across this nation who are the lights in the dark world. And the, brighter, the darker the world, the brighter the light. And so has God called us to be light for into darkness? Yes. So, so, so many of us, though, we retreat and we wait for God to do some kind of supernatural something and write it in the sky or shake the very foundation when God is wanting us as the Christian people, those who know him, who have the light inside where God flows through to go out into the darkness, not sit back in our churches. And God has poured into you, and you have the light of God inside of you. And I'm talking about the very light of Christ, the very hope for all of the nation, the hope for eternity, the hope for the hopeless, the hope for those who are hurting, the hope for the lost. God has placed it in you, and God flows through you to do that. He doesn't use someone else. He wants to use us to do that. But we can't do it as long as we say, we abide by your gag order, O government. We, we abide by your gag order, San Francisco. We abide by your gag order, politically correct. Are you kidding me? Are we going to listen to God or are we going to listen to them? Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Go. You see, what happens is he gives us the authority at that point. We need to realize we have power beyond what is natural. We have supernatural power, and that's what makes this different, a different day for us. And God will do something great in our nation if we would get on our face before him and not just pleasantly cry out to him or call out to him or do a nice little prayer, but if we would really get before God and really pray and really repent and really love people as God wants them to be loved. There's a difference between speaking about God and demonstrating God. There's a difference between sharing about Christ and simply and demonstrating Christ. Oh, what they did was they prayed right here in this place in New York City. And they called upon God in that, on that day of April 30, 1789, the first Congress and first president and first vice president, praying together. And they lifted up our nation before God because they knew they had been under the Queen's influence of England and they knew they didn't want it anymore. They knew they had to have a firm foundation. And so they built it on this day. And then, they walked out, and this is the actual picture of St. Paul's Chapel. It's in New York City right now. That's it. The place where they prayed. 
In fact, when Pam and I went there, we went inside and they've turned it into a 9-11 shrine, though it's still an active church. And we go in and they have George Washington's pew there. And I kid you not, I saw family after family and person after person walk through that building and they would see teddy bears from 9-11 and say, oh, look, teddy bears. And then, oh, look, letters. Oh, look, fireman patches. Oh, look at pictures. And they went from place to place throughout that building and they would, where they were mesmerized by the things of man. As good as those were, I'm not saying they weren't great things. The teddy bears that were given to people in need and the fireman patches who served their life. All of those were good. But I kid you not, I stood there for 45 minutes and watched... Literally hundreds of people passed George Washington's pew where the country was founded on this particular day. The rock was made and they'd be like, oh, George Washington must have done something there. One person stopped in 45 minutes out of hundreds. And I go into the front of the church and there's a place to pray where the Congress and the President, where those guys knelt to pray for our nation. And I said, you know, I kind of want to pray for our nation. And I, I went up and they had a sign, please kind of be quiet because, you know, this is time of a place of prayer. And I knelt down to pray. And, and when I did, here's a work ladder across the altar, just where some, some janitorial type maintenance guy had left a, a work ladder across the prayer. And as I knelt down, I sensed the Lord speak to me and say, that's like the nation. You've taken the ladder to me and you just got it sitting on the altar going nowhere. And I got up from my prayer after lifting up the nation. And I went over there, had the pulpit, and the Bible was sitting on it. I said, I wonder what it's open to. And I looked over, and I was looking at a scripture. And a little French guy comes over to me as I'm leaning in, and I'm reading this verse of scripture. And the scripture that my eyes falls to is, and they try to, dis, to, to disrupt the nation. It was in Isaiah. And this little French guy comes up to me and says, Excuse me, sir. Can you move? I'm trying to take a picture. And I was like this, and the savage came out in me, and I said, you want a what? He said, I'm trying to take a picture. Can you move? And I said, when I'm done. <laughs> and I read that, and then I was done. I was like, you, you want to do what? I was just trying to take a picture. I'm like, well, go ahead. And it reminded me at that very moment that as we try to get into the Word, those around us are always trying to take pictures and this and that and everything else but the Word of God. And you know what? We've allowed them to take us from the Word of God into the things of man because they want us to. This building where they prayed, a holy sanctuary for our nation, sits at the, across the street from the towers on 9-11. And so when 9-11 came, and those planes went into those towers and they came crashing down, all of us remember that horrific day if we're old enough, and as those planes they came down, that's an aerial view from the New York Police Department I came across. Look at the destruction going through all the streets. And the, 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 in, in St. Paul's Chapel sits at the base of all of this, in the middle of all of this mess. And then it goes with lives lost and people injured, of course, which was horrific. And here's St. Paul's after the debris had settled. 
The building was built in the 1770s. You would think it would have crashed to the ground. Instead, you know what happened? Awnings, buildings down, awnings destroyed, rubble in the streets, cars blown up. But St. Paul's Chapel didn't have a single window busted out. Where's that on ABC or NBC or whatever? How can a building built in the 1700s sitting at the base of the towers with all of that debris and everybody having destruction and they don't have a single window busted out? I went to, to uh, uh, YouTube where you can watch videos and I came across some guy on there and he goes, man, it was like some kind of divine something had his hand on the place. You think? You know why? Because God is still interested in maintaining the foundation for a people who will call upon Him. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. God doesn't shift, we shift. His foundation doesn't become soft, we become soft. God is still interested in saving America. And as Brother Fred said a couple of weeks ago, He's not interested in saving the lifestyle of America, but He is interested in saving America. And it's not the nation, it's the people of the nation. Well, with our nation found upon Christian principle, I, I wrote, in fact, I was quoted nationally in an article this past week, where I said, the nation was not founded as a Christian nation, no. But it was founded upon Christian thought and principle, yes. In fact, Patrick Henry said it cannot be emphasized too clearly and too often that this nation was founded not by religionists but by Christians. Not on religion but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I don't know about y'all but Patrick Henry was there, wasn't he? I think I'd rather believe Patrick Henry's words than some liberal professor from NYU. Through extensive research, we have found that this nation was not founded on Christian principles. Really? I guess Patrick Henry and the others I could take literally an hour giving you were all lying. Well, look at this. The First Continental Congress, and y'all will know this, I'm going to fly through it. First Continental Congress in the United States of America, when they met to come together, guess what their very first act was? They prayed. This is a picture of it. In fact, on the bottom right corner, that's John Jay, the first Supreme Court justice in our, in our country. The first Supreme Court justice kneeling in prayer to God in the name of Jesus, and they read Scripture from the Bible. It's the very first Congress. George Washington's over on the left, along with Patrick Henry. The Adams boys are in the back on the left side. Well, you know what else happened? The British decided, well, we're going to cut the Americans off from Scripture because we know how important the Bible is. So one of the things that they kept from us during this period is they said, we won't give you Bibles anymore because the printing press is set in England. So Congress was, in, was concerned about this, and they came together and said, well, we've got to do something. Let's find some Bibles. So the United States Congress went out and bought 20,000 Bibles. A guy named Robert Aiken, a, a, a printer, in Philadelphia, it said, I think I can take the Bible and I can reprint it. And this is a copy of the, Aiken, the, the cover of the Aiken Bible. I've got a replica of it in my office. What you're looking at is the Capitol, they moved to, the, to, to, New, to Washington, D.C. And when it came to Washington, D.C., 
they built the first wing of it. This is 1799. And they went ahead to open up the first wing of it. And guess what the very first order of business was in the United States Capitol? Had a church service. A Christian church service. Did y'all know that? The very first meeting in the Capitol building was a church service. In fact, check this out. Thomas Jefferson, yeah, Thomas Jefferson that's supposed to be the deist. Thomas Jefferson went to church at the Capitol. The Capitol served as a church building all the way until the 1860s or so. And, and Thomas Jefferson went, and this was in about 1802, and Jefferson said, we need some worship. Brother Ed, how about this? He said, we need worship. We need a band. And they're like, well, who can play? He goes, well, I'm in charge. Call the Marines in. And they called the Marine Band to come and be the praise and worship team at the church service that met in the Capitol. Now, guess what happened in common? Some things never change. Some people in the church said, we don't like all those drums, see it? <laughs> so it lasted uh, like a year or two, and then they got, got rid of it. It was causing too much controversy. Some things never changes. The United States band, praise band, Thomas Jefferson. And then we turn around and check this out. The black and white photo in the middle is the U.S. Capitol in 1850 on the ex exterior today. That black and white photo, the reason we did it that way is because in 1850, the United States Capitol was the, was the house, the largest church in the nation. 2,000 people would gather every Sunday to meet at the United States Capitol. It was the biggest church in America. Most presidents went to it. Most of the Congress members went to it. In fact, on a given Sunday, four different Protestant churches would meet inside of the U.S. Capitol. Four. That's how come they understood, in God we trust. And then they turned around and a few more of these so we can move on. This, when they built the house chamber where we, our house meets now, and they have the rostrum up front. Y'all see that, Right? Nancy Pelosi was there, now Boehner stands there. Guess what the first act of Congress was when they opened the house? Y'all ought to know by now. How do we do business as a country? They have a church service. Congress provided the hymnals and the Bibles. They had a minister come in and do the sermon. It was, and they prayed in Jesus' name. And the rostrum, the rostrum was the pulpit. They preached in that chamber where now liberalism spews so oftentimes. Well, then it goes on, and let's talk schools for a moment. That's the New England Primer. That was the primary textbook in United States history for well over 300 years, even before our nation was founded. The New England Primer had things about the, the, the Ten Commandments, which throughout it had scriptures throughout it, had all kinds of Christian things. That was the primary textbook in our schools. In fact... Noah Webster, you know the Webster's Dictionary? Who the, when he wrote it, it had verses all on the front and the Ten Commandments and so forth. Now, because well, he's not involved, of course, they've changed all of that and taken all those godly references out. But Noah Webster said this. He's called the father of education, by the way. He said the Bible was America's basic textbook in all fields. George Washington said what students would learn in American schools above all is the religion of Jesus Christ. Well, we maintain that. In fact, Lincoln, or we maintain that, and, and, in eight, and we had prayer. Some of y'all were a part of this. You remember it vividly. 
Some of y'all remember praying in school. And this was the prayer in New York, the state of New York. This 22-word prayer is what went to court. And it was decided by the Supreme Court that prayer was no longer could be offered in schools in, 18, in, in, in 1962. The prayer was this. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence on Thee and beg for Thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. And it was at that time that we said, you can't do that in schools anymore, and we took it out in 1962. 1962, we decided to start building on a piece of sand. Let me prove to you and prove to anybody else who doesn't even believe the nation was on Christian, Christian basis. Left side SAT scores, that's college entrance exam since 1962, it has plummeted. On the right is the... Is the Graduation rates, number of those who don't graduate, look how it's gone up. You realize that Mobile, Alabama is 50%, about 45 or so percent of our kids will not graduate high school. Every year, 6,000 kids will get on a bus in kindergarten, and by the time they reach 12th grade, 3,000 of them roughly have gotten off of the bus and never get back on it. Since 62. The divorce rate, we all know it's high. It continues to hover at 49 to 50%. On the left, it's skyrocketed. Unmarried couples living together has absolutely skyrocketed, especially in the last 10 years. Close to 10% of couples live together. Then we turn around and you have the U.S. teenage women who have had premarital sex, absolutely skyrocketed since 62. Pregnancies to unwed mothers, absolutely skyrocketed since 62. Cases of sexually transmitted diseases, absolutely skyrocketed since 62. Suicide rates, skyrocketed since 1962. I don't even give you the, the stats on crime and, and, you know, those other type things. Single parent homes, which we have here. I'm not saying that's, you, you know, that you're not doing your job, but they have skyrocketed since 62. But this is an absolute fact. The next one's incarceration rate. And what we know is this, over 90% of those in prison are coming from fatherless homes. So maybe there's something to do with, if you want to solve our prison overflow problem, maybe it has to do with the family structure. But you see, and then look at this next one. Church attendance and church, those who believe in Christ has steadily gone down since 62. So when the scripture talks about righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people, you have to ask, We've redefined what is disgraceful. We've taken what is sinful and we've made it glorious, and we've taken what is glorious and we've made it boring. Or so the world thinks. Aren't you sick of turning on the television and seeing all the gay agenda? How about Chick-fil-A this week? Take a stand on traditional family and the mayor of Chicago and the mayor of Boston both say, you can't do business here. Really? That's American. Would you say the mayor of Boston, the mayor of Chicago has begun to say, no, 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 we don't want a house built on rock. We're going to create it the way we think it's right upon sand. So Mike Huckabee turns around and he says, hey, everybody that loves Chick-fil-A go eat over there on Wednesday. 325,000 people have signed up online to eat sandwiches at Chick-fil-A on Wednesday. 
And the mayors of Boston and Chicago have retreated and said, oh, we, re we really didn't mean it that way. <laughs> well, you see those numbers, the morality issue that we have that unravels? And then what happens so often is, for instance, divorce comes from Victims sometimes of divorce comes from immorality. Different issues that we have in society comes from different things of morality in the sense of one party did something to someone else and it creates a whole domino effect that affects people, maybe even generations. Well, John Adams, our second president, said our Constitution was made only for moral and religious people. In other words, the Constitution can't survive without morality. In fact, James Madison, this is a little long, but he's, he wrote the Constitution. He was the fourth president. He said, we've staked the whole future of American civilization, that's us, not upon the power of government, far from it. We've staked the future of all of our political institutions upon our capacity to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. So what James Madison says is, if we can't keep the Ten Commandments, then we, we, we can't survive as a nation. You guys aren't going to make it down the road. Is that not like a prophet saying, hey, 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 if you want to make it, there's certain ways you've got to do it. It's got to be based on the Ten Commandments. Adam says it's got to be based on morality. Then you turn around and Abraham Lincoln said, the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man, but for it we could not know right from wrong. Well, in 62 we took it out. Now we have people who don't even know the difference between right and wrong. You see, it didn't happen initially because the parents still had it in the home. But then they had children and it began to wean and the numbers began to skyrocket and the church attendance and the number of believers began to go down. Now we're in another generation and this is an absolute fact. When you remove yourself two to three generations, they don't know what this generation had. They don't understand it. They don't get it. So we've removed ourselves a couple of generations from 1962 and now you reap what you sow. In fact, Harry Truman said, if, if we don't have the proper fundamental moral background, we will finally end up with a totalitarian government which does not believe in the right for anybody except the state. It's called 2012. Get this one. Then we're going to get back into the word in a moment. Douglas MacArthur, the great general, certainly not a theologian, but a historian is a part of his training as a general. He said, history fails to record a single time in which nations subject to moral decay have not passed into political and economic decline. Now let's just stop for a moment. Go back. History fails to record a single time not one. Where a nation is subject to moral decay has not passed into political and economic decline. Are we in political decline? <laughs> economic decline? Oh yeah. And we keep acting like different things might get us out. The bottom line is, if these people are right, we don't get out. Amen. 
And he goes on to say, there has either been a spiritual awakening to overcome the moral lapse or a progressive deterioration to ultimate national disaster. The great general said, listen, it has never happened when a nation begins to have a moral issue, which by the way, Gallup did a poll and it was like overwhelming 60 or 70% of people said, oh yeah, morality is horrible in America. And the great general said, when you have this, the bottom line is every single time this has happened, either they had a spiritual awakening or they had a progressive deterioration toward national disaster. One of these happened back in Judges, in fact, in chapter 2. I'll read this to you. Judges chapter 2, it said, verse 11, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, let me go back up. Verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, and they followed other gods. See, history tells us, the Scripture tells us, Judges 2, just like our foundation. The fathers had a firm foundation. They followed God. But then there came a generation, it says, who didn't know God, didn't know the great things of God. And they began to sin and they began to chase after a thing, an idol called Baal. And Baal was known for its, its sexuality and, 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 and people began to have these big festivals around Baal and and worship Baal, and it went on and on and on, and it says, ultimately, and it angered the Lord, because they had forsaken the Lord. 62, where our foundation, I showed it to you, and we could have spent two hours, literally, on the evidence of a firm foundation built upon a rock, and then things began to unravel, and then in 62, we shift our whole thinking and move it over to sand. And now we're reaping the consequences as the winds are blowing and we don't know how to get out of it. Spiritual awakening or progressive deterioration? As Washington reminds us, the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Mr. Washington, who knelt down that day and kissed the Bible and said, so help me God, then turned around and reminds all of us, even in 2012, that God cannot smile upon a nation who chooses sand over the solid rock of Christ. So Jesus asks us today, are we fools? Or are we wise? Well, Eisenhower said, without God, there could be no American form of government, nor an American way of life. Think about that. That wasn't that long that he was president, long ago that he was president. 
And he says, hey, without God, we, we wouldn't have an American form of government. If it wasn't for God, we would not have an American way of life. Well, now we're seeing it. In fact, Ronald Reagan said, without God, democracy cannot and will not endure. What was that in the 80s? Without God, democracy cannot and will not endure. Are we fighting for a form of government? Oh, no. But the form of government that they created was founded upon a rock. And that is what we fight for. Because upon this rock, we can build our house. And when the winds come against it, and the waters rise, it will stand. Well, instead, what we get is shooting in Colorado, just horrific, horrible, that's a nut. But the devil obviously got involved in that. What scares me is when our Defense Department lets our Navy officers march in uniform in the gay parade in San Diego two weeks ago. And they say, why would you do that to Leon Panetta? And he said, well, because they've been planning it for a long time and they asked for it. Oh, that's a good reason. Like other parades haven't planned for a long time. Well, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Ephesians 6, 7. We made our choices. We lived with our choices. Now we reap the consequence. Sometimes I think we can't sit here and simply act all pleasant and beautiful about everything. The truth will set you free. Jesus said that. And the truth is, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, that we all know in this room, if my people, that's us, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. A land that's not healed means his people haven't surrendered, submitted, prayed, chased after him. If God's people had done that, we would have a healed land. See how that works? He says, if my people will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from the wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. A land that's not healed, you have to go backwards and say, why is it not healed? Because God says if we do this, he'll do this. But if we don't have this, then we didn't do that. So in 100 days, we vote for a president. 
and some members of Congress, and here's what I'm asking of you. We're asking you to pray. And we know we have to have a moral compass in our country. But I believe maybe we need to add to our prayers. See, if we have revival, we don't have to fool with these statistics. Joe, are you advocating for prayer in schools? No, because I don't want some teachers praying if my kids were in the classroom. I get that. We're not asking for prayer in schools. What we're asking for is for us to be lights within schools. For us to pray at home. For us to pray on a firm foundation. You see, what we need, and what I'm asking you today to do for the next 100 days, is yes, pray about the election. But in my view, more importantly, is we can have a change in presidency or we can keep the same president. The bottom line is, it will not change until we get our moral base right, and our moral base right will not happen until we get back on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. So the simple truth is, we need to pray for an absolute outpouring of God Almighty upon our land. And an absolute repentance upon our people. An absolute outpouring of God upon our land. And an absolute repentance of God's people. A surrendering of God's people. God's people to get on their face and not just simply pray during the blessing before a meal. And Lord, help our nation. No, what I'm talking about is an absolute getting before God and crying out for a land. Oh God, bring revival, because without you we're on sinking sand. There is no other way but you. There's no other way but Him. There is no firm foundation but Him. There is only one way, and that's God's way. Everything else is man's way. We cannot buy into the lie of man's way. We cannot accept God's, the man's way. We must accept God's way only. He is thunder, and He is lightning, and who can ascend the hill of the living God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, that is who can come before God Almighty. And it's us who have that God is waiting upon. It's us for us to pray for a nation, not the people in San Francisco or New York or change in Washington. It's a change in us, not a change in them. Because it starts with us. And beyond that, get this, we're in the Bible Belt. We're the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. And if we can't get it right, we're the last stronghold in this country. You get it? That's how come they said, oh, well, Chick-fil-A works down south, but it doesn't work up here in Boston. That's why Rahm Emanuel says, we don't share the same values as Chick-fil-A. We're not like them down south. Listen, all I can say is this. We have a choice. And if there's going to be anybody who's going to be a light and anybody that's going to pray because they get it, it's got to be us in this room. 
And not just us, but across Mobile and across the churches and believers across this country. The good news is we have believers in every corner of this country. And if we can all come together and call out to God, God Almighty will answer, won't he? Why would God have us and lead us to pray for revival if he didn't want to give revival? Why would God have us pray for the lost if he didn't want that person to be saved? God is wanting and God is waiting and God longs for us to simply call upon him. Let's not be deceived, but blessed is the nation whose God is Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach. Sinking sand, solid rock. Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I struggled with this message, and let me tell you why, and this is how we close. Every day... Part of my job at University of Mobile is to answer the question, a nation is in crisis, what can the church do? And we deal with this on a continual basis. And we interviewed people on the streets, New Orleans, pastors across the nation, Sammy Tippett to, to Tom Ellef, I mean, all these different guys getting their opinions on it. The tendency is, is for me to sit here and come up with some kind of a a hope of saying, let me show you what's happening here. This is positive. Or, you know, this is good. Or, well, you know, we, we've, this is a positive. But the simple truth is, I could give you all kinds of positives. But, y'all, that's not true. We can't place hope into something that's peripheral. There's only one place we can place hope. The one rock of Jesus Christ. Today I ask you if you'll be willing to pray. For the next 100 days. Every day. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You say I will pray. And I will call out on behalf of my nation. And that God would awaken his church. And that God would have its way in our churches. And that God would pour out revival upon our land. If you want to pray for the other things, you need to do that. Let the Lord lead you to do it. We need to pray for those things. We need to pray for the election. Absolutely, yes. But I'm asking you today, will you call out for, the, for revival and awakening in our land? Every day for the next 100 days. Because that's our only solution is to say, put it back on the firm foundation. 1852, they had a revival. This nation was in a similar situation. And they began to pray. I went and saw that as well. It's hard to find. And they began to pray on a little street about two blocks from St. Paul's Chapel. And they began to ask and call upon and say, Jesus, the time has come for you to be glorified in our land. And it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and the nation came back to God. We've seen that happen three times in our nation's history. And this is the exciting part, is we're living at a time where we can see that happen again. 
Wouldn't it be awesome to see God just pour out? People getting saved everywhere. The airwaves full of God. I think we can see that. If we fulfill Second Chronicles. So will you pray for the next 100 days? That's our invitation, is you making that commitment and asking the Lord's help to do that.